Support for The Interchange comes from Schneider Electric, the leader of digital transformation in energy management and automation. The three Ds of the energy transition. Shale, do you know what the three Ds are? Decarbonization, decentralization, digitization. (laughs) You're good. You've listened to this ad before, haven't you? No, that's just everybody uses that. Although then the problem is then you have to often you have to fit in electrification and it's not a D. So people struggle with how to do that. Well, we're not doing it here. Those three D's, uh, they are simple, easy to remember, and they are part of Schneider Electric's business because they are reshaping the energy landscape with stuff like microgrids for everything from community resiliency to higher adoption of electric vehicles. You can find out more about Schneider's project development expertise through the link that we have there in the show notes. We're also brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is working on getting large fleets of vehicles throughout California electrified. And uh, if you are a big customer, a corporate customer, maybe you're a government and you want to electrify your fleets, you should go to PG&E and you can actually find a resource on fleet electrification at pge.com gtm. That's a handbook. And there is no information you need to plug in to get it. It is a free resource at pge.com slash gtm. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I am Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM here in Boston. Welcome to the show. This week... We are exploring the clean tech opportunities in physical infrastructure. What are the most compelling trends shaping the way we optimize our electrical equipment, pipelines, streets, homes, and buildings? We are exploring this topic with none other than Shale Khan, my co-host and a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Well, as we near the end of the year and, and hit the turn of the decade, which is crazy, we are thinking big picture about where the biggest business opportunities lie. We just finished up a series on climate risk, and now we're in this mode of thinking about what we can do to address that risk. Where are the business opportunities? And we had some fun with that deep decarbonization draft, and now Shale has been thinking deeply about an investment thesis as a way to address these risks, physical infrastructure. So let's face it, here in America, our physical infrastructure is terrible It is deteriorating fast. Every single year, there's this report card that comes out from the American Society of Civil Engineers, and they almost always grade our collective infrastructure a D plus. And hardening those roads, grids, buildings, transit systems has a climate context to it now. Everything has a climate context to it, as we outlined in our risk episodes. We can do it better. We need to do it to prepare for more extreme weather, and we have to do it cleaner. So where do we start exactly? Shale recently wrote one of his masterful medium pieces about exactly this topic, and we're going to dissect it right now. He has a new thesis. Shale, you're, you, you write these, these, these pieces on medium. I think it's very cliche to have a think piece on medium. Are you going to have a TED Talk soon? <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting for the people at TED to give me the call. I'm actually surprised you don't have a TED Talk. <laughs> I've, uh, I've thought about doing some TED-like stuff, but... It hasn't happened yet. Maybe someday. If if you're listening, Chris Anderson from TED, give me a call. <laughs> so what was this piece all about? Why is broader infrastructure suddenly a part of your investment thesis over there at Energy Impact Partners? Um, I actually, I wouldn't say it's sudden. 
So the, the piece that I wrote um, was basically a written down version of a keynote presentation that I gave at EIP's annual meeting this year. For regular listeners, you'll remember I did a similar thing last year with a bunch of bets about bug. But what I was thinking about this year, um, like I had like a revelation a little bit as I was thinking through what are how can I tie together all the different things that we at Energy Impact Partners think about? And I realized that basically everything that we do um, is trying to figure out how to leverage technology to improve our physical surroundings for the betterment of the next generation. A lot of that has a climate lens to it, though not all of it. But you know, really, and this is not true everywhere, right? There's a lot of places where they don't care so much about physical infrastructure. Um, maybe they only care about like enterprise SaaS tools or something like that. And certainly we look at that stuff too. But I think the common underlying theme is that we have we have so much infrastructure that we've built up in the Western world or that we are building up um, in the third world that still has a, an enormous amount of headroom to be improved both from a climate positive perspective, but also just efficiency and optimization. Like we can do so much better with this stuff. And there's a million different ways in which technology can be brought to bear to do that. And I think that's kind of like the um, the underlying driver of a lot of the things that we end up investing in at EIP. And so I was trying to think through, okay, what are the the big areas in which we see technology being able to improve infrastructure? What do those look like? What are the technologies that are required? What are the business models that are going to be born out of that? And when? what is the opportunity for the infrastructure providers, be they cities, be they utilities, be they others, to take advantage of all these new technologies? So there are four main areas. We're going to go through each. And I think in general for each, I want to ask similar questions. What is the problem that we need to solve for? What's the investment opportunity? I know you have some uh, EIP portfolio companies that are addressing some of these problems. So maybe we can look at it through the lens of the investments you're making. And then what is the climate angle? Is there a decarbonization play to the investment? Before we do that, I want to be clarify, we're not actually talking about, in most cases, building the pipelines or building the infrastructure. It's We're mostly talking about making that infrastructure more efficient or making it easier to build that infrastructure, like enabling technologies. Am I right in that? For the most part, though, I would say, you know, we go through replacement cycles on infrastructure that we've already built. And whenever we replace a piece of infrastructure, that's a that's an opportunity to do it better the next time. So I wouldn't totally rule out um, actual hard infrastructure build type of technologies. And I'll probably reference a couple of those. But you're right that for the most part, I mean, particularly given the urgency um, around which we need to take action on some of these things, it's hard to wait for replacement cycles. A lot of our infrastructure is meant to last. 30, 50 years, something like that. So you don't want to just wait for the next uh, cycle to come around in order to get anything done. Okay, so let's walk through each category. The first is the geospatial revolution, how we are remapping the world. And there are a few different pieces of tech that are enabling that remapping. What are they and like what's the problem that we're trying to solve for? So I think here the problem um, is something that I'm continually struck by, which is that the reality is that though we have built up all this infrastructure from our streets to um, and the people who are on them to the grid to buildings, all this stuff, we actually still generally have very little visibility into their status. 
right? What is actually happening with them at any given time? Um, you could see this in real time in you know PG&E territory, where like we turn turns out that one of the reasons that PG&E is uh, facing all these wildfire problems and having to force all these outages and things like that is it doesn't actually have um, perfect visibility into the state of its system, and so that makes it riskier, um, among other things. Uh, and that's just like one bit of it coming to light. It's it, I think it's true in in general to a surprising degree, and so. Um, and that causes all sorts of cascading challenges, which we could talk more about. But what is exciting to me is that um, I think that there is a, a wave of new technologies, all of which are arriving basically at the same time, and all of which solve a different piece of this problem. So specifically, I would sort of categorize the technologies into three groups. The first is satellites. So satellites themselves are not new, right? And we've had things like uh, Google Earth for, you know, uh, some number of years. But Google Earth is actually a good example. We're like, have you ever um, done the Google Earth satellite search of your own house, Stephen? Yep. So the image that comes up, is it from like a different season than today, for example? Uh, yeah, it's from before we actually bought the house, actually. So right. the, the, there's a the, the the profile of the yard is different. There it is an it's a very old photo. Right. And so I think that's common. So I think you know the the limitation historically has been with, with satellite imagery has been twofold. One is that uh, the imagery isn't frequent enough for certain applications. If you want to know what's going on with something in closer to real time, then satellites just weren't going by often enough. And the second uh, is the granularity of the imagery, right? So you weren't able to get um, small enough resolution that you could figure out what's going on with something smaller than, you know, multiple meters across. Both of those things are changing now. So we're getting this wave of new satellites and increasingly microsatellites that are being deployed um, that are, first of all, capturing incredibly frequent imagery relative to what we've seen historically. So there's these individual, like, clusters of small commercial satellites that are just doing Earth observation. So there's a different set of satellites, for example, that are being put up into space for communication purposes. Set those aside. This is just the ones that are there to map the world. Um, already, there's there's some satellite clusters from companies like Planet that can get basically daily imagery of the entire world. There's some others that are going to focus on specific areas, like urban areas, and that might be able to um, image the same place up to five times a day. So you're going to get much, much more frequency of this imagery. And then the second thing that's happening is that as time goes on, the resolution is getting better and better. So we're getting to the point where you know, you can you have resolution down to a couple of meters right now, but the the real bogey that everybody's chasing after is the FAA sets the limitation on the maximum resolution that you can have for one of these commercial Earth observation satellites, and that um, maximum resolution is down to twenty five centimeters. So that's what they're all like aiming for. So the reality, so the the result here, twenty five centimeters. How big is that? Like your shoe? Yeah, exactly. That's like the 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 length of my shoe. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, draw that forward and you imagine that we launch all these new satellites and they have that kind of resolution, uh, we're going to be able to image basically the entire Earth down to that resolution daily or multiple times a day. And that allows you an enormous volume of potential opportunities for, take an example of something like vegetation management, which is one of these issues in the wildfires, um, and you want to understand what the what, where trees are encroaching upon power lines or even just like tracking a wildfire right and seeing where it is um so there's just a bunch of opportunities around that driven just by satellites 
it's not hard to picture all the different applications that that can have in just developing a better understanding for us of what's going on, particularly in our large physical infrastructure and the stuff that is very remote and hard to get to otherwise. That is pretty extraordinary. So you can get a pretty high level of granularity and that is improving, but there's all sorts of limitations to satellites. So I imagine that you need to have a terrestrial technology that can assist with satellite imagery. Yeah, exactly. So satellites have the one limitation, which is the the resolution is only so good. It's not really, really small. And second, that they are just taking pictures from space. And so, you know, anything that you need that's three-dimensional or hard to reach or blocked from space, um, satellites aren't going to solve that for you. Fortunately, we also have this revolution in drone imagery, um, which in some ways is sort of a perfect complement to satellites because drone imagery is inherently three-dimensional. It's sort of the whole purpose of flying a drone is you can get three-dimensional imagery. It can be basically whatever resolution you want because you just stick a camera on the drone and you could stick the highest resolution camera if that's what you want to do. Um, and it's basically on demand. You just get the imagery as often as you want to fly the drone. So all the things that satellites are not perfect for um, drones do a really good job of filling in the blanks. Okay, so in-step drones, which can cover a lot of the areas that satellites can't, uh, but you need to get even deeper on the device level. So what comes next? Well, right. So then, you know, satellites get you the uh, imagery of the big stuff and the remote stuff. Drones get you the three-dimensional imagery, but then you, you, the, the things you're still kind of missing are, one, really small stuff or hard-to-reach stuff, um, think industrial equipment, right, uh, or stuff inside, and two, stuff that needs to be continuously monitored because you're not going to be flying a drone at all times. You're not going to get a satellite image at all times. So then there's this third category, which is sensors, which is kind of a bucket category, right? But you could think of anything from environmental quality monitoring to uh, gunshot detection sensors to video cameras, like all this different stuff. And we are just deploying them on mass, particularly in urban environments and in industrial applications, to better understand all these types of things that satellites and drones aren't going to to get you. Okay, so the combination of these three technologies allows us to remap our infrastructure and monitor it in real time. What's the investment opportunity in that? Like, how do you take this tech revolution and turn it into investing? Well, there's a couple of different things, right? So one is just within that, um, it's easy to say, like, for example, I will take drone imagery and I will do something with it. Um, it's actually very difficult to do, particularly if you don't want to do everything manually with a lot of people. So as an example, um, talking our own book, EIP, we invested in a company called eSmart, which is based in Norway. And they basically take um, primarily drone imagery, but they could take other imagery as well, apply computer vision to it so that they can automatically detect on things like power infrastructure um, where there are anomalies, where there's a need for maintenance, where there is a likely failure. Because otherwise, you're just getting all this like camera footage or imagery from these drones, it's it's very uh, challenging and time-consuming to go through all of it. So one investment opportunity is figure out how to actually make use of the data once you've got it. A second is figure out how to develop the platform to get this information into the right hands. So another example from our portfolio is we invested in a company called Simcon Lighting, which is a connected street lighting vendor. 
Um, so they, you know, help cities and utilities replace existing streetlights with um, controllable LED-based streetlights. But when they do that, they can place a node on top of a streetlight upon which you can place basically any sensor that you want. Um, so you could do gunshot detection or check the air quality or safe, other safety and security applications, anything that you need. Um, but you need a place to host that. You need power for it and you need communications for it. And so they provide all that kind of in one box. So the first investment opportunity is just like, you know, it's easy for me to say there's a revolution coming in all this stuff, but actually every step of that process is hard and, and in my opinion, a good investment opportunity. But then the second category is I think where you need to go, which is like, it's one thing to remap the world. Um, that gets you a better perception of your physical surroundings, the state of them, um, and perhaps you know what needs to be done in real time. But I think ultimately the, the biggest opportunity is when we go from perception to prediction. So it's one thing to know the state of a piece of infrastructure. It's another thing to say, okay, this is what it means it's going to happen to it next. And then ultimately the holy grail is prescription. What do we do about it, right? And so there's lots of opportunities that basically combine this geospatial data that we all of a sudden have an enormous volume of with the revolution in data science that has been happening simultaneously and the ability to apply things like machine learning and artificial intelligence to that data to say, here is how you can better manage all this infrastructure. So the sort of quintessential example of that, um, again, from EIP's perspective, so we invested in a company called Urbant, which is a portmanteau of urban intelligence. Um, and they partnered with one of the utilities who's an investor in EIP, Fortis, which owns uh, Maritime Electric, which is the utility on Prince Edward Island. So your challenge, if you're on Prince Edward Island, you're operating the utilities, you've got all these poles, right? Like utility poles, they're around everywhere. They have 16,000 Eastern Cedar poles. And the problem with that is that they're prone to failure in high wind events, for example. Um, and they've been in seeing increasing high wind events on Prince Edward Island. So the normal thing that you would do um, is you would one by one go through and inspect all the poles to see if they are likely to fail. But that takes a long time. You get 16,000 of them, relatively small workforce. So you, you know, might come back to a given poll every couple of years. Um, but what you should be doing is applying all of this geospatial data, information about the poles themselves, but also combining it with all this other data that you can gather now about things like soil drainage and quality and air quality and weather and all this other stuff. Um, plug that all into an AI model to try to predict where the risk is going to be which is exactly what Urban did. And the result was that if you basically risk score all the polls and then you focus on starting by prioritizing the inspection of the polls that look like they're highest risk based on all this other data, you get, or at least in this case, they got a seven times uplift in the percentage of polls that they inspect that actually are high risk. In other words, they are going after the high risk polls first. So it's a really tangible example of like, take data on the state of the world, apply our newfound ability to leverage that data to prescribe action, and then use it to improve the resilience of a piece of physical infrastructure. I am incredibly bullish on this particular set of technologies and, and data solutions. I mean, the amount of potential here is extraordinary. There's another company that we highlighted on an episode of What It Takes uh, recently. We had Laura Shule of Streetlight Data. 
on the episode and she talked about uh, how they're sourcing all this incredible amount of amounts of data about how people are moving around cities to help cities uh, make better infrastructure decisions about mobility. And we really just like don't have an excuse to make bad decisions anymore. I feel like like we, we the data is there. It's becoming there. You know, I, I think I wouldn't go so far as to say we don't have an excuse anymore because all this data is nascent. It still takes time to figure out what, you know, to separate the signal and the noise um, and to make sure that your predictions are accurate and, you know, circumstances are changing around you. So this stuff is all very much in flux in my mind, but I agree with you that the opportunity is enormous. And I think, right. So in the case of streetlight data, we're talking about um, data on mobility, data on the movement of people around cities. That's another example where, you know, historically, we would use this really manual processes of like sending people out to street corners to actually just count vehicles. Um, and one, that only got us vehicles. It didn't get us pedestrians and bikes and all this other stuff. And two, it was obviously not like real time and robust data. So now all of a sudden we're getting more and more by deploying sensors on the streets and using GPS data and, you know, f- data from fleet vehicles, and all this other kind of stuff. And you combine all that and suddenly we have a, a good operating picture in real time of how people move. Uh, and then there's a million applications for that. So I agree with you that the opportunity here is huge. Uh, I do think that it's still emerging and like we haven't solved all the problems yet. Well, the second category is resilience. And you look at uh, building resilient infrastructure in the context of the built environment, our homes and buildings, but this applies to all types of infrastructure. So how are you thinking through the culture of resilience, as you call it? Well, it starts with what we've been talking about for the past few weeks here, which is climate risk. Uh, You know, we're already seeing increasing frequency and magnitude of natural disasters. It is actually pretty universal. One of the interesting things is I was was looking at a map of natural disasters in the United States over the past 40 years or so. And, you know, there's, there's pretty much nowhere that's immune Either you're in wildfire territory or you're in flood territory or you're in hurricane territory or tornado territory. Um, so everybody's got something. Some some have multiple things. Um, one of our utility partners at EIP is Oklahoma Gas and Electric. And as far as I can tell, Oklahoma is home to the widest variety and highest frequency of natural disasters anywhere in the United States. But anyway, everybody's got some of this stuff. And so if you, you know, the, the cost of that is also increasing. It's not just um, it's not just sort of like fear. You you're seeing the moving average cost of insured losses due to natural disaster consistently increase. It's gone up more than four hundred percent in in twenty seventeen dollars um, on a ten year moving average basis since the seventies. So costs are are becoming very real. So I think people will start to wake up to this risk more and more, and that one of the results of that. Um, in addition, hopefully, to people thinking more about climate change and voting on climate change and things like that, is that we will start to invest a lot more in resilience. Hmm. So where are you seeing this culture of resilience emerge now? So in my opinion, it's still early days, but you can see uh, flashpoints of it, I would say, around specific events. So an example would be, um, I like to sometimes look at Google search trend data, and you can see sort of how 
uh, particular searches wax and wane over time. And if you look at searches for the term backup power, for example, you can often see a very clear spike that comes around the time that there's a natural disaster where um, there is a power outage. So you saw it in Texas around Hurricane Harvey. There's a huge spike then. We've seen it in California uh, around the proactive power shutoffs. So people start to think because, and this is intuitive, I guess, but you can see it in the data. Um, all of a sudden you lose power, particularly if it's a surprise and you not used to using, losing power. If you lose power all of a sudden, then you think, wait a minute, what can I do uh, to solve this before it happens next time? That's just sort of one example in my mind. The other thing that that starts to happen, I think, that will reinforce this is that those who have already invested in resilience are going to get a lot of credit for it when the next problem comes around. So you see this at the residential level. Like, you know, I was talking to a friend here in Northern California who had already got um, batteries for the home when the power was shut off to their entire neighborhood and their house was the only one with the lights on and they became like a beacon for the neighborhood. You see this at the commercial level as well. We uh, at EIP invested in a company called Enchanted Rock, which is based in Texas, um, which had been already installing microgrids that could island for uh, commercial customers in Texas prior to Hurricane Harvey. And when Hurricane Harvey hit these um, areas, these places that had already invested, like a bunch of HEB grocery stores, for example, kept the lights on and became these gathering hubs for the community. There was even a National Guard staging point placed at one of them because they had power. And then there were articles written about this. And so there's this like, I think, flywheel effect of um, we're going to want to think more about investing in resilience. And then those who do are really going to get a lot of credit for having done so. So you're saying this culture of resilience will mean that in a lot of areas of the country, when real estate agents are showing off homes, they're not just going to like show off the mud room and the finished basement they're going to be showing off like the battery system and you know the protective wall in a flooding area as as uh selling points for the home totally yes i absolutely think that that is going to be i think you're going to you know when you look on zillow or redfin or whatever you're going to see the flood risk score you know there's just like a and you already do in some places but it's going to be more prevalent um I, I think that, you know, resilience is going to be an asset. Um, and, and you also just said something that I think is important, which is we talk a lot about electricity here. So focusing on things like backup power and microgrids and batteries is important. But resilience is obviously about much more than just keeping the lights on. It's keeping the building intact as well. And one of the things that uh, I've been struck by is how able we are to uh retrofit our homes and buildings to become more resilient to whatever the natural disaster is that you have in that territory. So it might be a fortified roof if you're in hurricane territory. It might be better wildland um, urban interface management in a wildfire area. There's actually a lot. There's obviously earthquake retrofits and things like that. Um, there's a lot you could do to just make a building more resilient. And I think that's going to be a big part of this too. So then what's the investment play? The obvious solution is solar and batteries for homes or some combination of backup generators, solar and batteries. Uh, it could be a microgrid for a municipal building or a commercial building. What is the opportunity there and what else is there? Right. So you mentioned two obvious ones, which is ride the wave of investment in grid resilience from the customer side. We've done that with Enchanted Rock on the, the commercial side. And I think there's going to be a huge boom in residential battery backup as well. 
Um, outside of the electricity space, you know, I, I think there's going to be some opportunities around insurance. I mean, one of the things that we're starting to see happen already in wildfire territory, you see this, you know, I think a little bit as well in the in hurricane territory um, and flood territory, insurance premiums go up, they, they, they spike when an area that was not considered to be high risk suddenly is considered to be high risk. And if it is true that there are ways to mitigate that risk substantially for the same building and the same property, then that should lower the insurance premium. Um, that's sort of one example of, I think, a business model that's going to start to emerge. You see a little bit of this, a different version of this happening in insurance already, which is some of the sort of nouveau home insurance companies, um, companies like Hippo, which is sort of a, a relatively well-known um, unicorn in that space, are, uh, along with your homeowner's insurance, giving you IoT devices in your home, smart home devices, like a water leak detector, uh, which you know I think is partially a branding play for them, but also partially... Uh, ability to mitigate the risk to them and thus the cost to them. And so I think there, what, what's going to be interesting is um, how we actually get these investments in resilience into the hands of the customers. Will we just wait for customers to do it themselves? Is there going to be a standard to which they will all try to meet? Um, or is it going to be pushed on them by those who have the most to lose, which is the insurers? Well, you heard it here. The culture of resilience is coming. And that brings us to a word about our sponsor. Today, we live in a world where the entire power ecosystem is being upended by digitalization, decarbonization, and decentralization. And that means more microgrids. Microgrids for local energy during outages and extreme weather events. And Schneider Electric is helping companies, communities, and governments embrace those microgrids. They have developed more than 300 projects across North America. If you want to learn more about a Schneider Electric microgrid and all the different technologies they use, follow the link in the show notes. If you are looking to electrify your fleet of vehicles in California, there's nowhere else to turn but PG&E. Well, if you're in PG&E's territory, that is, in Northern California, PG&E is helping all kinds of organizations electrify their fleet. Uh, California has to get 5 million zero-emission vehicles on the road by 2030. That's a huge goal, and electric vehicles are going to play a really important part. And companies and organizations are playing a crucial part with their fleets of vehicles. You can get a free guidebook to how to take your fleet electric. No strings attached or forms to fill. Go to pge.com slash gtmev. Topic number three. Let's hit the road here. You outlined the replatformization of streets. What does that mean? <laughs> um, well, the context here is that when we first paved roads, um, you know, say a century ago or a little over a century ago in, in cities, uh, they were pretty dynamic places because in the early days, you know, we just started to see automobiles arriving, but we also still had pedestrians walking on the roads. We hadn't really like separated roads and sidewalks. We had horses and buggies. We had lots of people, we had bicycles, all this stuff. So they, they used to be pretty dynamic places. And then I think what's happened over time over decades and decades and decades is that our streets, and this is particularly true in the United States, I think it's less true in parts of Europe, 
Um, but in the U.S., our streets have increasingly become optimized for a single type and mode of transit, which is the passenger vehicle. And so we end up with these like multi-lane highways. You know, you see all these like photos of Los Angeles from above, and it's the perfect example of that. And that has served us well in many ways, right? Like we become a much more mobile society. Uh, but it seems somewhat unsustainable, both in a literal sort of environmental sustainability sense, but also uh, we end up spending a ton of time in traffic now, collectively. We In the United States, we spend um, over 9 billion hours in congestion delays every year, which is up. It's been increasing uh, pretty steadily since the 70s. And so there's this sort of problem that everybody recognizes. But what I think is interesting that's happening now is that we're sort of uh, getting forced back into a more dynamic street. And why is that? Well, we have all this new stuff arriving on the streets. Um, think about, you know, scooters and shared bikes as one example. Think about, you know, what's going to happen as we see autonomous vehicles arriving. Think about all the Amazon package delivery vans. Think about um, the ways that, you know, car sharing and ride sharing have um, change the sort of types of transportation, the way that the streets are used. So it's just becoming a much more dynamic place, whether we want it to or not. But I think that presents an opportunity to sort of rethink of our streets again as being a platform. And the, upon that platform, we want to place the optimal ways to get the optimal modes of transportation to make sure that people can get from A to B equitab equitably, affordably, and fast. Um, and that may or may not mean that we optimize entirely for passenger vehicles but there's an opportunity to rethink the ur our urban streets that i think is um there's a both a push and a pull right the push is being driven by all this new stuff arriving and the pull can come largely from cities which have the ability to to uh be forward thinking about this kind of stuff so then what's the investment play? Well, we've invested in a company called Remix, which is a software solution specifically for cities and transit agencies. They work with over 325 globally already, um, which allows them to do everything from better transit planning, design bus routes, and then see exactly what the impacts are going to be on the population to actually literally redesigning streets. Um, so think about what might happen if you add a protected bike lane or a bus rapid transit lane or protected left turn lane. What are the impacts of that? How do you do that? How do you engage the public in that kind of thing? So there's definitely um, one sort of play that is just help the cities become more and more the orchestrator of this increasingly dynamic landscape. But then there's also angles around, you know, I think one of the interesting um, climate-driven angles here is if you really care about vehicle electrification, um, I think what you should care about more than anything else is public transit because we're actually electrifying buses much faster than we're electrifying passenger vehicles. And the result is that if you want more electric vehicle miles traveled, just make the bus system better. Um, and so how can you go about doing that? You can, and it, the other knock on effect there is that if you optimize the streets for buses, you can have a really big impact on the actual range of the electric bus itself. We invested in a company called Vericity, which is based in the Netherlands, um, that can track the impact of things like driver behavior on, uh, 
electric bus range and it's surprisingly large like it can be like 30 percent or more uh for the same vehicle driving the same route in the same conditions just depending on how the driver drives so i think there's a lot of connections between the re-platformization of streets and just making our streets optimized more for this new dynamic mobile this new dynamic urban mobility universe and our desire to decrease carbon emissions from transportation. Yeah, that's a cool one. I loved the video that you share of San Francisco's early streets and just how much is going on in the street and how that looks very similar to today when we have all this multimodal transportation intersecting in our streets that were designed just for cars. So that brings us to the fourth category, something that we discussed on a recent show the age of 100%, the age of 100% clean electricity, 100% renewable electricity, 100% carbon-free electricity. Name your target. 100% is becoming really crucial to the way that we think about the future, the not-so-distant future of our power systems. So how is that forcing us to think about the choices that we need to make today in electricity, and what does that mean for this broader infrastructure thesis? Well, I think that I, you know, I'm sort of bought into the idea that we're heading, we're, we're now heading toward 100%. Again, define 100% of what, but between all these commitments that you're seeing from private actors, consumers, uh, corporations, utilities, states, all this stuff, like, let's just assume we're heading in that direction. But the reality is that today, on an aggregate basis, we're not at 100%. We're at like, you know, if you just look at electricity generation from zero carbon sources, um, we're at 36% as of the end of last year. So there's a long road to go from this 36% to 100%. And there's going to be a, you know, a winding path with a million questions that I'm sure we will spend the next few decades addressing on this podcast. But to me, the, the kind of overarching thing that that teaches me is that the one thing we know we are going to need more and more of as time goes on in electricity given the fact that we are going to be heading further toward 100%, is we're going to need flexibility. We're going to need sources of grid flexibility because the preponderance of that 100% is going to come from wind and solar, which are intermittent, right? So just managing that intermittency via flexible resources will continue to have value. So then the question is, what provides that flexibility? And I think we talk about stuff in a kind of point solution manner a lot of the time. And so the way that I like to think about it is we know we need flexibility, but there are kind of three different ways that you can deliver flexibility on the grid. The first is that you can deliver flexible generation, which is sort of how we do it today, right? Natural gas plants, for the most part, serve this purpose. They ramp up and down. Um, you could do that in a zero carbon world via continuing to operate those plants and having carbon capture. Uh, or you could do that by, for example, adding batteries to a wind or a solar project. Um, but that's just one, right? So you could you make the generation itself more flexible. Second thing you could do is flexible, what I call flexible delivery, which is, you know, widening the aperture of trading, increasing transmission, um, basically dealing with geographic arbitrage here. Um, the, the broader the area with which you can uh, optimize resources, the easier it's going to be, especially when you're adding a lot of wind and solar. And then the third area, which to me is the most tantalizing, but perhaps the biggest challenge, is flexible demand. We've talked about this a lot of times, but just to throw a couple numbers on it, if you add up all the resources that are going to 
be put on the demand side of the equation, the customer side of the meter, um, that have the possibility to deliver some grid flexibility over just the next five years or so. So add up like your electric vehicle chargers and your smart thermostats and your home batteries and maybe your smart water heaters. Uh, you add all that stuff together. We did some back of the envelope estimation and found that it's roughly th- the potential to shift about 30% of peak load in the in electricity in the United States, just using those resources, which is an enormous amount. But there is a big gulf between the potential to provide flexibility with all those resources and then actually providing flexibility with all those resources. And it's a complicated, uh, I don't know, ocean to sail across because uh, you need to figure out the consumer end of this. How do you get the consumer involved? Do they care? Do they not care? How do you monetize it? Um, how do you work with the utility or the wholesale market? Just a million questions. And so I think there are investment opportunities across all three of these, but we've certainly spent the most time on the flexible demand side because like I said, it's just so tantalizing, but also such a kind of big monumental challenge to overcome. This is a space that will be much more familiar to our listeners, given the nature of our conversations and how much we focus on electricity. And I know that there are a lot of practitioners out in electricity, either at distributed energy companies or within utilities. So this area feels much more familiar, but it's also a crowded space. Maybe it feels crowded just because we know all the companies operating, but there are some compelling plays. There are a lot of people making a bid for those plays I'm wondering what opportunities stand out for you in terms of how companies are approaching this market. Well, I don't. I think that one of the interesting questions companies are facing is sort of um, the degree to which they need to reach into, for example, the home or the business directly, or whether they want to be an intermediary layer. And there, there are upsides and downsides to both. At the end of the day, the resources themselves are going to sit at a customer premises, be that a residential or a commercial customer. So somebody has to be the interface with that customer, um, and somebody has to figure out how to get customers to agree to either shift their behavior or to let somebody else shift some resources on their behalf. So a whole group of companies are going after a sort of direct-to-consumer version of this. Uh, Then there's a group of companies that are saying, no, 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 I don't want to touch the customer directly. What I want to be is a layer in between all these customer side resources um, and the grid to figure out how to actually optimize them, how to aggregate them, how to send the right signals to them and things like that. And and I think there's value in that as well. Um, But they're two sort of fundamentally different approaches. And what I think is going to be interesting is to see um, sort of not which one wins out, but how these two different groups of companies end up interacting with each other. All right. So that's the four categories, the geospatial revolution, the culture of resilience, the replatformization, the replatforming of streets, the impacts of 100% clean energy. Um, is this going to be guiding your thesis in 2020 and beyond? Yeah. I mean, look, I think there there's a bunch of categories that I'm missing too, but I each one of those four things I think is sort of an enormous category of its own. Um, I'm a believer that all of them are secular trends that will continue for a fairly long period of time. And I think each one of them is going to spawn entire, you know, multi-billion dollar industries. So I'm excited to keep poking around in all those areas amongst others. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode. We only have one show left before the close of the year can't believe it well if you want to uh still weigh in on what you want us to talk about it for our year-end show 
there's still time. We are structuring our uh, look back over the last nine and ten years, and we want to hear what you think we should talk about. So tweet at us. Um, maybe tweet out your fe- favorite episode of the year as well. Give us a year-end treat and put up a rating and review at Apple Podcasts as well. And we'll be back next year with our year-end show. The Interchange is produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. Shale Khan is my co-host. We are a co-production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey. Stephen Lacey.